Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. Thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host, Patrick, from Pull String Press for this great studio. Hey, Patrick, good morning. Mark, that was the best you've ever done that. Hands down, 170 times. So you would figure I'd get it right. Yeah, you know I'm gonna put that one. In, I'm gonna I'm gonna save that one on the computer, and then when when we don't have one as good as that, I'm just gonna drop that in. And no one will know the difference. Well, because the, the true, true fans, they'll say the true fans that was know. the best one. That was there here. He just did number 173, the best one. You know we have a return guest this oh, so morning. Glad. So glad. Dane Howard, welcome back to the show. Hey Mark, so glad to be here. Dane, you're the uh, chief experience officer at Trove. Uh, remind our listener what Trove is. Trove, yeah. So Trove is reinventing insurance for everyday things. So they've uncoupled traditional umbrella policies so that you literally from a mobile phone can protect what you want, when you want, for whatever duration you want. And we've been busy. So we've been in Australia, we've been in the UK, and we're coming to the United States in late Q1 of 2018. I'd love to uh, set up a meeting with you and our sponsor, Tolman and Weicker, because they're uh-huh. the, the 100 and over 100 years. I don't, I don't want to make a mistake, sure. but they've been around the region for yeah. a long time. Great supporter of the show. And there might be an interesting conversation for you to have with them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, what Trove is, is really a technology company first. They started with this opportunity just to find uh, really this digital exhaust that's coming off of everyone. And digital. Oh, do you hear that? And Don't stop him. It was good. That was awesome. Well, <laughs> it, this this is interesting because every transaction we have now, whether you use a credit card or Apple Pay or online, produces now this uh, digital exhaust that represents things that you've purchased. And just now there's that inflection point that that can now exist in the cloud. And so we captured that opportunity. Trove started as an inventory app and you started to catalog and monitor the value of your things, but then became this really interesting opportunity to say, well, what do you do with those things? So for, if the on-ramp is e-commerce and the off-ramp is donating or selling or getting rid of, what do you do with that journey, which is ownership? And so Trove is right in that middle of that arc of ownership. And so one of the great things to do, particularly to this younger generation, is to protect that. and. What's interesting today is insurance sits within a 300-year-old industry, <laughs> and there's not a, a lot of does, invention. Do, do you, I was going to say, do you, does, does that mean that they're using practices uh, that, that maybe don't apply currently to uh, the way that we uh, live our lives? So uh, an, it hasn't evolved uh, at the same pace as technology, sure. let's say. And so if you think about a traditional umbrella policy and the interface to insurance, it's like a blunt force object. And so just as we, you know, it's kind of like us, you know, going back and and time and remembering how we would listen to music. You had to experience the album or buy the album if you like the particular song. Uh, What we're doing and what Apple did to music, we're trying to do for insurance. So decouple, unbundle the traditional insurance policy, allow uh, someone just to protect what they want and to be able to swipe to protect that item. Um, and 
that's liberating. That's pretty transformable, transformative. And to do that on a mobile phone that has all these really cool sensors and, and intelligence then sets the stage for smarter, more contextual insurance. And so no one likes to pay for more than what they want to. And if you think about your daily commute, you grabbed your bag, you left the house, sometimes you get on a plane, that provides um, some context. And to be able to provide that uh, smarter cover, uh, it sets a really nice narrative for photographers, uh, the gig economy, people who really just, you know, their whole life is in their backpack sometimes. And if you think about what could be lost. So that's right now Trove. Um, On-demand insurance is really the, kind of the way into it. Uh, you, if you've ever taken an Uber or a Lyft, uh, that's a moment or a software trigger that says, help, you know, let me call the car, let me hail the car. You get in the vehicle, that ride starts, that ride ends. And that it's a really nice, um, precise way to kind of think about insurance. And so it's another way Trove works in the background is to be able to allow that that insurable moment to have that precise start and stop. So that so that when you're you're only paying for the times when you're at risk or you're only paying for the items that are at risk rather than paying sure. for just kind of a constant fear of, of lo yeah. losing everything you care and about. Think of it less as on and off. Uh, you'd like to be covered all the time. Sure. But just like your laptop manages it, its battery really well. It mm -hmm. goes to sleep. And then the moment you open it, it's ready to go. Think of it as kind of a softening of the premium and a... And a huh. Does, does that, so now, now financially speaking, um, are on, on the other end of it, are they able to do, I mean, like our renter's insurance, I, I feel like it's like 20 to $30 a month. So like, you know, fracturing that down to just the times when we're at home or, or, or I don't know, like that's not a good example of Trove, but um, you know, like, like it doesn't make sense to, to, to fracture the cost of things down inside of these insurance policies. We're doing the modeling right now. So the, the, the one thing you're trying to do is give more control to the customer. Mm at the same time that you're simplifying it. So our customers would say, bar none, wow, you're just simpler. I understand it. Mm. I know what I'm getting, and so on. You never want to transfer the cognitive load to the customer, like, oh, is this on, is it not? That's not their job. That's it's not, not their job. Right. That's what they're paying. Exactly. So you'd want it to be a convenient service that also runs in the background. Mm. We have this, uh, this utility effect, right? You, you never really think about your utilities. They just run once you swallow that bitter pill. <laughs> and then you go back and you look at the price. And you're like, oh, my gosh, do I need to, you know, go back to this? So that's why a lot of the loyalty of these services are so low. Mm. Uh, insurance is one of these things where they have, like, two touch points per year. It's like you have the, the annual return and the annual renewal of the policy. And people are like, oh, is this worth it? And that's where you see either you know, a renewal or a drop-off. If there was a claim, either that was a good experience or a bad experience, some of you have made a claim. And that's another thing around this interface to the insurance is broken. Um, if something does happen, you're like in a phone tree, you're faxing affidavits, mm -hmm. you know, you're in traditional old you know, technology. So you know, one thing that we did was we just built a chatbot. And the chatbot is in that messaging posture on your mobile device that says, hey, something went wrong. You know, you've got a camera on it. You can take a picture. You can sense location, put a map. And it basically answers in a few moments just the who, you know, what happened, when did it happen. Um, and then you've got this empathetic voice. And then all of a sudden you're right on with someone that's adjudicating the claim. So hmm. 
expectations of days down to hours, and, and then you've got everything from a person showing up to fix your phone screen to um, the money transferred directly into your account, or you've got something as quick as just overnight shipping if it's a replacement. Yeah, I'm on a photo shoot in, in you know, Belize, and I, you know, something falls apart, and I lose, I lose the, the kit. Mm. I lose the gear. It falls off the side of the boat. What do we do with this? Right. How do we deal with the situation? So what I love about Trove right now is it's, you know, I'm a technology and design guy. I kind of found this way into it. The people are fantastic. Uh, it's a state of my career where I just absolutely, it's, it's more about the people. And so I just love the people. And this just happens to be this extra wonderful moment where you get a chance to uh, make an impact on, on one of the last big industries to be disrupted. So let's move over to your job title because I, I love this. Um, <laughs> Mark could spend a whole show on good job titles. Yeah, well, I, I, this makes so much sense, and, it, and it's there's going to be another touch point here. You're a chief experience officer, and as our listener knows, I'm a TEDx guy. You're a TEDx dad, right? Yeah. Your your daughter <laughs> Chloe Howard was on the TEDx Santa Barbara stage in 2016. I want to, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. Yeah. Um, but through this other show I do with, I talk to TEDx organizers, I found uh, one TEDx, uh, TEDx Wellington, has an, a user experience, the head of user experience, and she's on the team. She's in the C-suite, so to speak, right? Yes. She has a seat at the table, and her job is just the experience of everybody who's going to be there. Everybody, the experience of the team, experience of the volunteers, experience of the partners, experience of the, and we don't call them attendees anymore. We call them participants. Oh, you that's know. interesting. Would yeah. you like that? Yeah, nice. We don't call them volunteers either. We call them hosts. Yeah, nice. Right? So it's, it's those little language things that I think are part of design, yeah. right? Um, so that's where, um, when you said experience officer, I said we, we'll, we'll, we won't spend all day, but I want to spend <laughs> a little time. How is that different or what what's different about that role and why is that role so important sure so this is an evolution so I'm, I'm 21 years uh, being a designer and there's lots of stories that have shaped you know my skills and my um, kind of my hard skills and my soft skills around design and I found myself um, you know increasingly uh, enlarging my impact and influence and uh, traditionally, as you move through an organization, a, a, a good way I like to manage talent is to talk to them about impact and influence. Because you can make an impact at the feature level, you can make an impact at the product level, you can also make an impact across the entire company level. And as you move up through the organization, your impact and influence uh, has far-reaching opportunities. Well, as we know, the experience of things is now a differentiator. And so what's come up through the ranks is the discipline of design. And you're moving from a posture where people were thinking about design as a part of the organization to now being much more holistic across the offering itself. And so I have had a lot of different kind of titles throughout my career that were steeped in traditional design. So you know, that could be a lead designer, or that could be a senior designer, that could be a principal designer. And on the path of individual contributor, usually the highest regard for a principal designer or an architect is usually around that title. 
Um, at the end of the day, I believe that, you know, impact and influence is, is more about, you know, less about titles and more about what's felt um, just inside the organization. But what is unique about my role now is that uh, I work for a CEO who absolutely um, believes in experience and knows that it's differentiating. And so to invite me into the C-suite uh, is uh, first of my career, and but also really important. And so my charter is about 85 to 90 percent externally facing or customer facing. And so that ranges from uh, a touch point of PR and comms. So you might read about Trove, you might hear about Trove, you might uh, see an ad about Trove. You might have an experience. And uh, your an fingerprints event. are on that. Yeah. So, so organizationally speaking, I have uh, PR, communications, and marketing. And in that is the story of the brand as well. So we have the management of the brand, and we have brand ambassadors uh, that we're building. And then there's design. And design is right now centralized, uh, but the biggest fingerprint that they put on is for product design. So we do everything from pre-visualization to, uh, to helping our biz dev team uh, pre-visualize, like when we do partnerships. Like, you know, we just did a, a major presentation yesterday in front of uh, someone I can't mention, but it was uh, unbelievable, the ability to pre-visualize a partnership and to say, uh, here's a hypothetical you know, future that we could do together. And so design is participating in the business development process. It's an imagining um, our product roadmap. And then all the way through delivery. And for a short while, I actually had a customer voice or customer support as well in the early days because that was another touch point that we had with our customer. So 85 to 90% is externally facing. The 10 to 15% on a good day is when I get to focus on the employee experience. And so that's where you use design and design thinking on like the, the next onboarding of a new employee, for instance, or uh, you get to focus on the experience of someone's career. And what does it mean to be uh, inside the organization uh, during the time that you're with us? That's a pretty wide spectrum. <laughs> Super wide. So uh, I have to wear a lot of hats, and I have to kind of be very chameleon-like. I have a lot of adaptive languages. And so I, I know way too many uh, acronyms and <laughs> way too much tribal language. But, um, but, but I love the, the bridging the chasm between different things uh, because it, uh, oftentimes um, someone who's thinking about HR it has, in a way, serves customers but then so does our marketing folks. And so the more that I can bridge those gaps and find similarities, uh, we can create a common language, common voice. And like any brand, you want everything like a symphony. You want all the instruments playing to the same tune. So whether you speak to a customer in the UK or Australia, or whether you onboard a new employee in New York, that brand voice, that brand story has to be consistent. And so the thought is uh, under my charter is to orient that into a common experience. I want to stay with that for a second because I, I have been working, I'm going into my third year working on a big project with a big ad firm in New York. And early on, it, it, it has an AI. And so early on, we, we needed, I felt, to personify the AI, much like Siri and uh, Alexa and, and those, um, that the, kind of that idea. Yes. Um, and so we did a full tone of voice experiment, or not, exp uh, not experiment, uh, exercise. And it was like a 90 page deck 
uh, that was, you know, this is how the tone of voice will show up in an, uh, in an email, in an error message, in a dialogue. This is the kind of language you use. This is what you don't use. Here's an example of good and bad. And, and when you're working with, a, and it's a comms company, right? So when you're yeah. working with that kind of company, they get that in their bones. Yes. But that language is, I don't care which of the 265 offices you're in or in the 42 countries, it's only one language. You right. talked about how you have had to become skilled. You called, you said adaptive languages, and then very quietly you said tribal languages. Mm. And I'm thinking the engineering tribe, the C-suite tribe, when I'm talking to the biz dev people, I mean, everybody has that language. And then the, the experience of people in the UK and Australia now, and then soon other countries as you go out, how do you establish a single lingua franca for everyone? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the great um, kind of equalizers is to get out of your organizational funk and orient around something that everyone can get behind. And I have found even with design can even be a little polarizing because people think of design or their experience with design or they had a good or bad experience with a designer. And so when you reorient things towards a customer experience, all of a sudden people can take off their, you know, tribal language, take off, you know, and adapt their language to a customer uh, kind of posture, customer empathy. And so one way to do that with, with an adaptive language is uh, oftentimes I just listen. I listen to the words that are um, real momentum makers, and I listen to words that are real blockers <laughs> inside of an mm. engineering group. I listen to words that um, are real lexicons. I listen to cliche words. And I kind of package them and see if there's something about that word or lexicon that's relatable in another department or another group, right? So, uh, and I just hold on to it. And uh, Let's see, this past year at our annual holiday party, everyone got different awards. They're kind of funny. And I got, like, king of the metaphors. That was my award. <laughs> so for some reason, I somehow repackage tribal language into a metaphor that someone can, uh, can understand or explain. And uh, to me, that's just helpful. To I was going to say, to build, a for you as well, to be able to right. say, what I'm hearing is this. Yes. And it makes it... Because I might not understand the nuances of back-end cloud computing encryption data flow, yeah. right? That was a mouthful. Uh, but I ha somehow have to understand or translate this discussion about maybe why we're um, having to re-architect our billing system under these conditions and translate that to marketing and how we might message it to, to press and PR. And lost sometimes is... is in that you have to know what to pick apart, what's relevant, and what it's like, right? So if anything, you know, so much of this is communication amongst each other. Uh, a lot of people think that companies are like these amazing things that just stand on their own and ship products in a product factory. But truth is, is that they're just people. And those people have to collaborate, listen, and communicate in such a way that makes progress real business progress happen. And so uh, I find a lot of times what I'm doing is, is this adaptive language translation 
you know, machine thing. The translation is very interesting to me. I was as as you talked along, we've had we've had so many guests on here, uh, business wise, who have said when you kind of ask them a question about you know working with collaborating, working with other people, their answer is to say the word listen, and it's to say oh well mm-hmm. we, you know my biggest strength or my biggest whatever is, is is to listen, and I think but but what I hear you saying is it's 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 how you're listening because very often they seem to listen in a way where it's like, Oh yeah, I just, I onboard all the information that's coming at me. Um, and then I make a decision and it's like, that's not what you're saying. You're saying that you're saying that you're listening very specifically to, to do, to, to hear the parts of it that you can then, like you're saying, repackage, which is a really nice, nice phrasing. But tell me more about like your actual technique for listening, I guess. Well, have you ever um, asked a question in a meeting that you knew the answer of? but you did it for the sake of everyone else? Sure. Yeah, Yeah, that's one technique. So everyone knows like, hey, you already know this. But what you're doing is you're framing the question in such a way that you're asking the person that, you know, this could be a technical language, this could be a legal language. You're you're kindly asking them in that way or manner to to explain it again. So what you're doing is you're you're putting yourself out there as being like, hey, I'm not quite sure I understand this. Can you explain it? what you're really doing is, is you, you're reading the room and you're, and some people are like, I have no idea. And you idea. can tell. Exactly. So, so by, by, inv- by you putting yourself out there saying, hey, I'm not quite sure I understand this. Can you explain it again? You totally get it, but you want them to articulate it in language that's a little bit more helpful for the group. Yeah. That's one technique. Um, another is, oh, just... I use the notes that I take in a meeting is less about the content and more about the who that I need to go uh, talk with afterwards. Uh-huh. So I'll be like, okay, Joe understands this really well. Jeff, I need to spend some time with because he's hung up on a few things. So I'll just basically ca- grab them for two minutes after a meeting or in transition. So while listening, you're, you're, you're planning the rest of your day at the same time. Yeah, you kind of know who, who to get with after the meeting. And this, this is a really helpful technique because particularly in experience, uh, you, the nature of it is not testing and shipping product. It's more on the front end. So think about going on a long journey. If you're just off by a couple degrees, you're going to end up in a completely different... Or you're going to miss the moon. Yeah. you're gonna. So galactically on these big things, you have to make sure a lot of your communication language is aligned. And, um, but also adjusting as you go, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And so you're always reiterating, uh, calibration is a good word. Yeah. So, uh, as you're calibrating, you're almost, re- you know, get, putting yourself in situations where you're repeating back what you heard. Mm. And, and in that, uh, just with the same raw information, you can have three different disciplines that heard different things. Yeah. Yep. And so, uh, <laughs> and a lot of that's the, the, when I say tribal, um, it's just meant to say we all come from different vantage points. And so you can have a particular business opportunity that has a very legitimate legal lens and an experience lens and a business lens and a marketing lens on it. And so what you're really trying to do is experience at the end serves everyone. Like progress, legal progress, you know, technical progress, it's all in service of who? And most of the time it's in aligned with a customer. Uh, and customer experience and business um, often sometimes uh, these are really interesting problems when uh, you have something that is better for the customer but 
will forego uh, revenue or, or business performance. Those are really challenging conversations. But most of the time, you get everyone on the same page or aligned through the experience. There's five questions in that, all of that. <laughs> I identify with this very, very closely because at Wavefront, I was the the voice. I was mostly, you know, 85% of my thing was, was out talking. We didn't have a comms group or that kind of thing. That was kind of me, right? right. But I, I know when I was sitting at Disney, I was having to interpret what the engineers back home wanted and interpret what the animators at Disney wanted and to be the Tower of Babel in between. <laughs> yeah. And I, so, so I totally get that. You need someone in your company who can do that effectively. And it's a natural thing for you then to be in charge of the comms because you're thinking about that, right? That's so sure. important. What's even more interesting and more contemporary now is the fact that you're, was, was it king of the metaphor? Was that what the king exact? King of the metaphor. King of the metaphor, <laughs> right. which is a story. Yeah. And we know that storytelling, we've, we're hearing more and more, we've been telling stories for 4,000 years, yeah. but all of a sudden stories are in vogue again. Yeah. Thank you, great. Yeah. Um, and so it's your ability to tell a story, which gets back to the very first thing you said, which is, you want to have impact and influence. Yeah. And the way you do that's through a story, yeah. the best way. Sure. Well, I was reflecting a little bit on um, today, and I was thinking about, uh, you know, it's always good to go through and, and take reflection on the stories that help helped shape your career and your life. And I started to group them into small little buckets. And we all start off um, really in our youth with the stories of aspiration, right? These are the stories of the unknown. These are the stories of our little bit of our dreams. And uh, they're, they're not tainted by experience. Right, <laughs> Does right. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, like sure. it, it, they don't have to, the no. functionality yeah. is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So, so very early on, uh, I happened to be good at art and I happened to be good at sports. And so naturally I started to want to combine those. So when I came to Santa Barbara, I was a, a college athlete and- What sport? Uh, soccer. Yeah. And so uh, I hadn't been recruited, I, but I did make uh, the team. I was a, I was a walk-on to Westmont soccer team. And so that was a reaffirmation. So you, when you combine your dream with a reaffirmation, you get these like moments of encouragement. And so they become stories or really important moments in your life. On the art side, I realized that I started to be really interested in uh, photography and painting. And I had no idea what it meant for a career. I had no idea, but that was my uh, little bit of my dream mixed with uh, the next chapter of my stories, which were the stories of you acquiring skills. So there's a moment when you take your aspirations and your dreams and you start to give yourself skills. So we all go through our careers where we start to acquire skills. So when I started to combine these, uh, for instance, uh, there wasn't a photography class at Westmont at the time, and so I begged the, uh, the, the school newspaper to give me access to the darkroom. Hmm. And so I really just taught myself how to, you huh. know, print and how to shoot on an old Pentax K1000 you fully just, manual camera. You just went on YouTube, right? There was no internet. Wait, what? How do you learn? So 
And then I collided with a, a Sunday uh, morning, you know, with down at the beach, they have all of the different artists that d display. And there was an artist, I forget his name, I was trying to look it up, and he did fiber-based uh, paper prints with hand-tinning photography. Yeah. And he did it in such a way that was very contemporary, and he built these photo constructions, and I just had never seen anything like it. I just fell over. And I said, I could do that. And I, I like, took his class at the city college, and I just dove right in. And so six months later, I had my first show here in Santa Barbara. And it was I, on State Street, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, in that uh, place that doesn't exist anymore. It was a little uh, thrift shop called Kamenichi's, yep. a little retail space. Yep. Yep. And so for me, uh, the stories of, of acquiring skills and learning skills uh, started to translate into a point of view. And shortly after, I kind of bugged you guys at Wayfront, and I said, can I please have an internship? And they're like, go away, kid. Hey, <laughs> show up the next day. Hey, can I get an internship? Um, and... I had thought that I wanted to be a computer animator. I loved computer graphics. Even back when I was in high school, I searched for uh, colleges that did it. And in <laughs> 1988, <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of colleges. Apparently, Ohio State had wrote. Princeton and Surrey. Yeah, they, they had written something down, and, and that intrigued me. Uh, but I, I found my own path. And so, you know, there's the stories of dreams. There's the stories of skills you learned. and when I started to do um, computer graphics, Wavefront provided a really great opportunity for me to just, again, learn trial and error. And I started to learn computer graphics. And um, then came this next story that I retell, which was very well characterized as um, kind of the, the, the path that divides or the course corrections in your life. And for me, this came with a really important moment where uh, I realized that photography and, and uh, art probably weren't a great career path for me, only because of um, just the journey I wanted to be on. But I was learning a lot about computer graphics. That felt like the future. It felt like really interesting. And I spoke to a friend of mine who worked for ILM. And from my vantage point, he had the best career ever. I was like, oh, my gosh, you were sure, working for sure. George Lucas. Of course. Of course. He, and uh, he was working on flying spaceships and amazing <laughs> stuff. And I called him up. I got his number, and I said, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this field. I'm so interested in it. Uh, how are you doing? And he, I had happened to catch him at a low point, and he was like, oh, I'm like, I haven't been outside very much. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I have uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh -huh. And he said, I've been animating dinosaur toenails for five months. And I yeah. said, what? And this is right before Jurassic Park came out. So uh, as I dug into it a little bit, um, he was working really hard on this Jurassic Park movie. And, and here I was thinking that he had a great job. And, and that was a really important moment for me because I realized, uh, as I retell the story, is that I wanted to be, or had aspirations to be the guy that decided that there were dinosaurs in the movie, wasn't mm. the guy working on the dinosaur toenails. Mm. And in that moment of that divide, I uh, had to say uh, there, was a, there was a job that was down in L.A. that was like kind of a fast track to be a computer operator. And, and I politely said, no, thank you. And that's when I went to design school. What you just said there was, I think, the, the, the linchpin, an, a computer operator. Right. Right. That, 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 that's, that's, I've, I've heard that story so many times from people who want to work for Disney being animators. And 
they were like exactly as you said toenails it's it's the the grass is the one i always hear about like sure you know six months making the grass wave in the background yeah and it's like they didn't get to design the the beast or beauty they got to design the grass and even <clears throat> and and take that up one level he said i want to decide that there's dinosaurs in it right right Right. right, not that's, what they look like. It's that's like, the storyteller, right? Not that's the yeah. storyteller piece yeah. of that. And yeah. so for me, that was a really important um, narrative because we all reach forks in the road, and we all mm -hmm. have, you know, in hindsight, the luxury of looking back. And for this one, it was really important for me to, you know, a lot of our experiences are shaped by the people we meet in our lives, of course, uh, the experiences we have, and also uh, really the failures uh, that happen. And so, you know. I'd say, you know, my path to being a chief experience officer has, is filled with those kinds of, of stories. But what you're really seeing also is um, the beginning of the, of the hard skills. And I would characterize this early on in my career is you just, when they say you have to like, you know, just earn your stripes or do your, right? I, the last thing anybody wants to hear at the beginning of their career. Right. Yeah. But, but truthfully, these are hard skills. I, I rarely see people that build their careers on soft skills and move to hard skills. Now, granted, you need them uh, in a close uh, symbiosis, but as you progress through your career, your mastery of the hard skills start to shift into the mastery of the soft skills. And so a lot of your impact and influence is, is guided by those things. So... There's the stories of dreams and aspirations. There's the stories that you acquire of how you've learned your skills. There's the stories of course correction or the forks in the road. But then um, the telling and retelling of the big moments in your life become actually the roadmap for your next thing. And they become actually the stories that help shape really what you're doing now and what you're gonna do. Mm. And I'll characterize these as stories of the big moments. Um, some of these are, we'd like to think that you had a, you had a hand in them, <laughs> and oftentimes you were just in the right place at the right time. I want to interrupt for just a second, because yeah. I've been thinking about this exact thing for about a year now. Yeah. Kimberly and I both, and, and we were introduced to this idea called tap on the shoulder, mm. which is how... Uh, lit up is your radar to receive the tap on the shoulder, which turns into that big moment. And there's some psychology around this and actually some studying around this now that that tends to happen three to four times a year for everyone. Yeah. And it's how are, how resilient are you? How aware are you to be able to take advantage of that and not just go, oh, what was that thing? Oh, that was a tap. No, hold it. Yeah, That was... You know, so it sounds like, so I'm just get yes. back to your stories of big yes. moments. I think they start, the big moment starts with that little tap. Yeah. So I'll, I'll plant something and I'll put it in the parking lot. So uh, when Chloe and I had a chance to meet Bono, Bono's the lead singer of U2. We're I can't believe you have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> we but have, but we thank have, you for doing it. But I, I just. We it, have young listeners. I know, I know. It just, it just, you, it's good. It's good. <laughs> So we're backstage uh, in Denver, and um, Chloe and I are having a conversation with Bono, and we're talking about, uh, you know, injustice, and we're talking about essentially this really important skill of, of resilience and, and recovering from something. 
and he talked about making yourself available for work. And we'll come back to that, but it was such an important uh, moment uh, as he was very uh, beautifully communicating to my daughter about when you do get that tap on the shoulder, how you need to constantly be available for the work. And so we cloud our lives with being busy. We actually mm-hmm. take a lot of pride in being busy. And it's so much a part of uh, corporate culture today. And so to being able to, to listen and to receive that and to be available for that work uh, allows you to lean into those big moments. I want to, let's, let's use that as a net. And, and I'm going to invite you back for a third show because I know <laughs> it. Because I know it right now. I love these conversations. I know our listener does as well. Um, I want to transition now to your, your uh, you just had a recent birthday. You're 46 years old. You're in the first third of your life. Um, and you have a daughter who's 17 now, 17, 17 now. She was 16 when she was on our stage. And it was, as I was thinking about the show and this conversation, I was, because I'm, I'm, I'm in one of the rings closely associated with your family. Yes. And, and we had, uh, Chloe opened our show last year at TEDx was was phenomenal you t- a year before that int- we saw you at a family gathering of a friend i got to meet your grown-up family and it's like these kids are awesome and look at where they're going my question has to do and i think our our listener will get this you're you've we've you've talked about stories of aspiration story of skill story of course question then story of the big moments you've done enough in your life 21 years as a designer you can look back and say that's what that looked like. And frequently when I talk to people, they'll say, yeah, I made that decision. That big decision came when I was 19 or 20. For you, it was, I'm not going to be a computer animator. I'm going to go be a designer. It changed everything, right? That was the course correction. Yes. Now you are the steward of someone else's journey, your daughter. Yeah. It's not just you. Yeah. And so you can take all of your experience as a, an adult out in the real world, plus your gaining experience as a dad, to be say, how do I show up for my daughter and your son, that will happen, and, and help guide them. I know you're very involved in, in Chloe's career, now a career, yeah. right? She's, I'm looking at a manuscript of her book that's gonna get published in the spring. Uh, she did uh, this last summer, she did a 50, uh, uh, speaking uh, a tour where she did 50 talks in in five different countries, I mean she's just going nuts. I'm curious, the entrepreneurial part of you as a human connects with the entrepreneurial part of her as a human, and tell me about that. Sure. So a little bit about Chloe's story, just to set the context, is you know Chloe was. Uh, pretty normal kid, but we learned in utero that she was uh, going to be born with a deformity, foot deformity. And so as any part of, of life grows, you basically love your kids, you love on your kids, and, yep. and you start to see them become, you know, from these little things that you shape to them becoming themselves and who they are. And uh, tragedy happened to Chloe. We had always told her that she was beautifully and wonderfully made. And then her freshman year in high school, uh, she was um, targeted and uh, assaulted uh, and bullied uh, for, with her foot. And she was, she was held and, and some, uh, some girls ripped off her shoe and sock uh, to, to display her foot. 
And I say I tell you that only because it sets a backdrop of things that happen in our life. You have this particular projection. No matter how much love or guidance and help, some, there, you, something happens, and you you can't anticipate it. it uh, you all you can do is make your way through it, and and hopefully uh, generate some resilience. So a big part of Chloe's story coming back through this has been the story of how I walk alongside her as a dad. And I'll, I'll pause for a second because if you've ever been an entrepreneur, uh, you're going to face failure. In fact, the most resilient entrepreneurs uh, are never, almost never, uh, one-hit wonders. It's that comes into the, the, the recovery stories, the resilience stories, and most of their persistence comes from an, an emergence of failure. You know, there's this saying in design where you say, oh, you want to fail fast and you want to learn. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I learned a, a variation of that many years ago, which is you have to recover fast. And so it's not the great companies or the individuals or the entrepreneurs uh, that necessarily fail fast. It's the ones that recover fast and build a resilience. So as a father, this is really a story about how entrepreneurship resilience meets uh, real fatherly resist, uh, resilience. And so the types of things that I end up, um, you know, the, the chief experience officer for Chloe's story is really one of soft skills and communication and taking the incoming of opportunities, uh, talking about them. You know, there's real tough moments when she, um, you know, has a hard time getting motivated to do something. And so I have to, again, sit within uh, the context to understand uh, where that's coming from. Uh, some people don't have the natural drive, you know. And so she loves being in front of people. Like this summer, she uh, went to India and Kenya, and she just loved on kids. It was the first time she had ever seen the same foot deformity that mm. she had seen. Mm. And she saw herself that, you know, even with a translator, that... Her words, she knew her words were powerful. You know, on the TEDx day, she knew that the, her words were powerful. But she could walk into a hospital. There could be like 50 kids there with their moms. And all she'd have to do is slip off her shoe and show them her foot. And immediately there was a, an empathy and understanding. And they would gather around and start to talk to her. So she loves those connection moments. But I would say if you've ever had... Um, an aspiration to have like your passion project. Again, you know, be be open to receive the work or that tap on the shoulder. And for me, this passion project found me because so much of what I do with Chloe now, and a lot of this is in helping guide and shape the opportunities that have come to her, like the book and you know, we just did a new documentary uh, that told her story and, uh, you know, the, the opportunities that she has to go out and speak all sit within this important framework of receiving, interpreting, and then deciding uh, to, to do it or to do it in a certain way. And most of my coaching with her, most of my um, encouragement to her is about Really, a lot of things that I can do is just walk alongside her and not get ahead of her. When I've gotten ahead of her, actually, uh, it's done a tremendous disservice to her. 
and that's probably a great learning. Uh, that's that. That's a tough one, right? Because yeah. you you've been the road, right? You're a Sherpa too, right? Right. So I no, I see that one coming. Yep. So I I do things uh, sometimes uh, to make introductions or to plant seeds, but I have learned also that you know anything that I want too badly for her usually goes horribly. Anything <laughs> that usually something that she wants for herself or things that she does. Uh, or that come in and, and she decides, then only then can I um, fertilize that soil, soil and, and, and make it grow and, and, and do the best that we can. You mean listening? <laughs> like, yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking of the person who's listening right now who might have a, a child that's in that middle school to high school, because I think that's when we start to figure out there's the rate or the rare one at seven or eight. They met somebody. They met a green beret and said, "I want to be that." But it's yeah. typically in middle school. Someone's asking the question, "What do you want to be?" Sure. Right, and you, you start making those. So, what has been the biggest surprise for you? Because because now you you know if we think of our family kind of as a business, it's not a business, but it's an organization. It yeah. it wants to have impact and influence as a family. Sure. So all the same things that you're talking about in your business apply to the family, yeah. right? What, so, what's the big surprise from a parental point of view to yeah. the person who's listening? So one thing I'm really glad for is just in the business environment, you would call this a board of advisors. And I think one thing that we did as parents uh, really well was create a board of advisors for our kids. Really? Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't put that label on it because that's a business label. But, yep. but my wife was very wise in that for my son, she kind of handpicked a very special uh, young men in his life, uh, at different stages of his life, that advised him on several things. And, um, you know, as parents, you have to realize that um, you could be saying all the right things, uh, you'd be communicating all the right things, but you're the parent. And so you, it's, right. you know, I call it the don't run in the hall syndrome. So, you know, a kid runs down the hall and you say, don't run in the hall and you get totally ignored. Uh, you have a guest over, a uh, kid runs in the hall and the guest says, Hey, don't run in the hall. And they say, yes, sir. <laughs> right. So it has, you have to somehow create an unbiased, um, uh, kind of, community of advisors and even in your family and for Chloe that's worked really well so you asked about what the surprise was the surprise was the the tremendous benefits that come from that and the relationships and the the you never really know when you go into it how fruitful that is and I wouldn't really call them mentors yet but they end up becoming just these periods of time in their life where it was really relevant to either encourage them or to help them get through something and so, you know, it's also helpful to know as parents that you don't have to do it alone. There, there it is, right? That you don't have to do it alone. Right. And, and, and also, I think taps on the shoulder or someone comes into the life of the family and you know that that person is going to have yeah. an impact. When, when we were at Wavefront, we had that after-school program uh, for at-risk kids. Yeah. And I would say, I'm not your parent I'm not your boss. I'm not your teacher. Yeah. I'm just another human that wants you to be successful. Yeah. I'll tell you a fun story. So uh, in, in the wake of, of this happening to Chloe, uh, she was going through her sweatshirt phase where she was not feeling very good. She put on the big sweatshirts. Mm -hmm. and, she, 
and uh, a friend of ours uh, who was 20 years at Pixar reached out to us and said, I want to do something special for, for Chloe. So she invited us up to Pixar headquarters. And, uh, you know. It's I'm, amazing. I'm more Emeryville. Yeah, I'm more excited than Chloe is. So I, we arrive, and, of course, you know, you start to see some of these cast of characters in the lunch area yeah. that you recognize. And you just, I'm already ecstatic. And then we get, we have lunch, and then she invites us into their private screening room. And um, we sit down in this very large uh, projection room, and everything's beautiful. And I'm sitting there with Chloe and Tucker and our, our friend Andrea, uh, who produced this short. You know, Pixar does these shorts. Yeah. And the short that she was producing was directed by a guy named James Murphy. It was the Lava. I don't know if you've seen Lava. Mm-hmm. He comes in, and his gift to Chloe was to talk about how, how he pitched the idea and how he got ideas going. And he basically pulled out this little ukulele case, and he basically sang a song. And the song was the pitch of, of, the, of the movie. And I'm like, you know, getting goosebumps, right? right? Of course. And creatively, I know how thoughtful that was. And then the lights go down, and he shows this, his, uh, it hadn't come out yet, so he showed lava. So we got a pre-screen of lava, and the lights came on. And then we had this conversation about what it was like to make it. And I tell that story only because it was such a gift to Chloe and such a gesture of amazing creativity, but it planted a seed in her about how does she decide to tell story? How does she decide to influence? And I know that sunk in. And it's also a story of gratitude and grace and generosity, creative generosity. And uh, just one of several stories that happened in this season of people saying, you know, I think this girl needs some, some help and guidance, like we all do. And, uh, but it was, it was fantastic that I got to, uh, see that kind of, of creative gratitude coming from, from them and, and, and them reaching out in that way. We're, we're at the end of time, and, but I, like I said, I want to have you come back. And I, I know you love coming back and sitting yeah. and talking and, and yeah. give us an update. Um, so with, with Chloe, she has a book coming out. She has all these opportunities. I love what you said of not getting out in front of her, and it's all about her and, and, and this. And, and I, there's this interesting blend between your job, you, your family, and how all of that fits. And we had Noah Benchea on, and he said, if you think there's a difference between your 9 to 5 and your 5 to 9, you've got it wrong mm-hmm. and how it's all integrated for you guys right. and it's just lovely to see that so I would, I would challenge our listener to kind of think about that you know like what are the skills that we learn as a parent that we can use in our business yeah empathy listening I'm just thinking of some yeah. of those right mm-hmm. and what are the ones we can learn in our business that would help because I think there's this natural when I come home from work that I'm gonna put that work suit away yeah and now I'm going to be the dad, and and there's, you're, you're uh, missing some really cool opportunities if you do yeah, that. Absolutely, and I I love the the moment I'm in right now too because the blending is just so relevant, so fulfilling. I think uh, early in your career, you know, we talked about a lot of the stories that help shape who you are and who you are at work, and I'm in a moment right now where uh, the five to nine, nine to five. Uh, you know, I also get to work at home. I have a home studio now, so I spend several days at home. And so just the encouraging posture that, you know, even by changing 
where you work and what you do, you collide with different people. And if you introduce casual collisions with your family, you're going to invite a lot more of, of their lives into yours and yours into theirs. And so a great encouraging factor is to just think about, you know, where you work every day, where you show up, and, you know, uh, substitute that, you know, business lunch with a lunch with your daughter or son and see where you can shape, you know, their, you know, their young uh, lives and what you can give to them going forward. I want to leave, leave it on that. That was beautiful. Uh, and as you know, because you listen to the show, and as our listener knows, we come to the point where we get to put a bow around this. And I, I got to guess you've already thought about this. And you're, a, I mean, you design things. So what are we going to call this show, Dean? Oh, uh, well, we always return to stories, Mark. Um, and it'd be so fun to think about um, the stories that shape our careers and our lives. Uh, it'd be fun to think about, um, anyway, you know, I'm a big coffee guy, so it's, you know, how to add cream and sugar, you know, to your career. <laughs> um, but I think so much of the joy that's missing today uh, really is in this last thing that we collided with is, is the blending, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, the stories that you want to look back at um, are rarely, you know, the ones of, oh, I wish I had more skills here, more, you know, you, you end up, your legacy ends up becoming the relationships and your connectedness with those around you. And so if you don't start blending them um, early on, your greatest legacy, if it's your kids or what you have, is the relationships you have. So it's got to be somewhere around, around that. We'll see. We'll see. And, and uh, since you've seen us, Patrick has a, uh, the first addition to his family. Oh, yeah. She's uh, eight weeks old yesterday. So. Congratulations. Thanks. She's uh, amazing. It's a wonderful time. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, you go on a, on a weekend trip. You're gone for two days. Uh -huh. And you come back and they look different. <laughs> you notice that those are the. It was it was between. <laughs> I picked her up this morning yeah. uh, to to change her before coming coming over here. And as I picked her up, I'm like, "You are heavier now than you've ever been. You are yeah. you are bigger now." I kept telling her that you yeah. are bigger now than you've ever been before. You're magnificent. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. She loves hearing that. Yeah. Dane, thanks for coming back. I I really appreciate it. I'll, I'll make a link to your earlier conversation with us. Uh, as well. And I'm also going to post Chloe's talk in here from TEDx. That was great. a great, great 18 minutes, right? And it set the tone for what turned out to be a great show. And we have our show coming up in a week, as you know, so we're, we're excited about that. I also want to thank California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner here, Pullstring Press. If you're interested in partnering with our podcast, drop us a note to partner at 805connect.com. And Patrick, it's that yeah, time of the show. Oh, where I get to preach a little bit? Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, stand on the soapbox. Well, rate, write, review. Let us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. Um, your advocacy for this program is what keeps it moving forward, so uh, reach out to the people that have not heard it. Um, but also your advocacy for uh, those out in the community that need a little bit of help or just need uh, uh, some, some, some protection from you. So uh, I want you to reflect back just on Chloe's story, and I want you to think uh, uh, where you would have been in that room, and, uh, and I want you to actively choose to be uh, on Chloe's side instead of the other one. And I know that's, that's heavy-handed. I know that's cliche. 
Uh, but God damn it, just be good people. It's our show. We can it's our do show. that. I've right? got a microphone. I can say stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. I love that. So I would love to hear from you. If you've got a great story that you would love to help get out into the world, this is the place to do it. Drop me a note. Mark at 805connect.com and thank you in advance. I, I love hearing from all of you. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations. <laughs>